We are jumping back into uh, the book of Philippians today, and so I just want to remind you where we've been, where we've come out of. As we've been walking through Philippians, uh, we have been honing in on this idea of being a gospel-driven church. And as we moved into chapter 2, uh, what we said is this, that if we're going to be a gospel-driven church who lives out our heavenly citizenship worthy of the gospel, then we must walk in unity through humility by knowing Jesus rightly and taking on his mindset. So part of this passage, we walked through several weeks ago, but we've come back to it because there is so much in this passage that we, we've got to make sure we actually understand what all is there. And so some sermons, you walk away and you go, wow, I walked away with 15 things to go do. And then there are some sermons where it's not as much on the emphasis on what to do, but on is this what we believe? Because I'll remind us, church family, that a hundred times out of a hundred, what you believe always governs what you do. And today is going to be one of those days where I want us to ask is, do we really believe? Do we see Jesus correctly? Listen to what A.W. Tozer says, one of my favorite preachers and writers, says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever, ever risen above their religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Church family, you and I will never live beyond our belief in who God is, meaning that if we have a small view of Jesus, we will live a life small for the glory of Jesus. If we have a right and large view of Jesus, then our lives will be impacted. There will be a difference. And so if we're going to be a gospel-driven church, we've got to make sure we have a clear picture and understanding of who Jesus is, even if that means we have to get a little bit more intellectual for a minute. And here's why I say that. Because the two greatest I don't know the right word, the two greatest cults today, modern cults today that, that utilize Jesus, both came out of the second great awakening where the emphasis was all on what you feel and not at all on what truth actually says. And if we had been better about making sure we had a clear understanding of Jesus, we might not have to fight both Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness today. Theologically. So if you got your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, look with me. Here's what it says. Have this attitude, or literally think your thoughts in this way amongst yourselves as a group, which also in Christ Jesus. Think this way. It's a present imperative command. Think this way. Take your thoughts, lead them a certain direction. It says, church family, think the way you think May it be the way Jesus thinks. It needs to be in this way that Jesus thinks. It means give serious thought to who Jesus is and then choose to think as he thinks. And before we even dive into, well, what is it that Jesus is thinking here? Let me just tell you. You want to know how? How do we do what we're going to look at today? How do we do that? How do we do this? Let me, three real quick things. One, how do you think the thoughts that Christ thinks, one, you got to know Christ truly. Let's be real clear. Unless you are saved by grace through faith and a personal response to Jesus Christ and the gospel message, 
There is no possible way to think what Jesus thinks because you are outside of Christ. The only way you and I can think what Jesus thinks, the only way you and I can take captive our thoughts and to think in the way that Jesus thinks is if we actually have a real personal relationship with him, which only comes in a personal response to him. But if we know him truly, then we've got to know his truth rightly. Church family, it's hard to take your thoughts captive to truth you don't know or are unfamiliar with. Which means if we know the word little, if we know what the word says little, it will be difficult to think the thoughts of Christ because the place where Jesus tells us how he thinks, we are unfamiliar and illiterate. Let me just tell you a couple of things Scripture says. One, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, church family, if you are in Christ as an individual, you've been given the mind of Christ. It says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that the Holy Spirit who lives within us gives us power to live out the commands of Christ. It calls us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to take captive our thoughts to obedience, which means this. How are we going to do this? We're going to make a choice by the power of the Holy Spirit within us to take captive every one of our thoughts and choose to lay down the thoughts that don't line up with Jesus before the throne of God and to choose to think the thoughts that Jesus thinks, it is possible to be done if we are in Christ because he's given us his mind and the Holy Spirit of God empowers us to do it. Now that I've given you the intro, let's see what actually Jesus thinks. Look with me. Have this attitude, think this way amongst yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who... Although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, a thing to be lorded over. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Yes, death, death on a cross. How does Jesus think? Well, look, look what it says. It says it says, tells us truth about who Jesus is. Jesus, who although he exists, present tense, he is the one existing, meaning that he has always existed, he always will exist. The one who is existing, what does it say? In the form of God. And that word form is a word that means the outward appearance, the outward reflection, the outward manifestation of what one's inward essence and nature actually is. So for it to be said that Jesus is the one existing in the form of God means that Jesus externally radiates deity because at the core of his being, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's what that means. Jesus is God. And he's always been God. He is the one existing in the form of God. He's always been God. He is God currently. He always will be God. There's never been a moment where he is not God. And Jesus, who is God, did not regard equality with God. Quality, what does that mean? It means, yet again, Jesus is God. He's equal. He is, he is God. He did not regard his being God as a thing to be grasped. 
this interesting, unique word. Uh, it can mean a variety of things, but, but here very specifically what it means, he did not regard his being God as something to be taken and lorded over others and used for his own personal advantage, platform, preference, popularity, but he emptied himself. Now, I want to pause here for a second, church family. We've we've seen clearly here in verse 6 that it says Jesus is God. Jesus is God. We need to be clear today when we ask the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Jesus is the Christ, and he is God. Now, flip with me. We're going to move around, so I hope your fingers are nice and loose and warm. If you've got to pop some knuckles, go for it, but don't do it if your neighbor doesn't like it. So... Flip over to the left a couple books to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. I want you to see, it's not just Paul picking up on this in Philippians. All Scripture attests to this reality. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Or I mixed it up there. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And later on, it tells you that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, here's what John says. He says, in the beginning was the Word. So here's the beginning, the beginning of all things. And who's already there? The Word, Jesus. And he's there and he is with God. And that that, that preposition there, with God, what it actually means is this idea is he is face to face with God, meaning that there, there is a distinction that there is Jesus and there is God or who we would call the Father. There is Jesus and the Father. But they're not just two beings as it says Jesus is God. Now we're getting really trippy out there. You weren't ready for this on December the 5th to come in and start talking about the Trinity. But we'll keep trucking. Flip over back in Philippians, just to the right there in Colossians, chapter 1. And look what it says in verse 15, Colossians 1, 15, about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And then flip over a couple more pages to your right to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says, In these last days, in these latter times, God has spoken to us in his Son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And, and he being the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Church family, Scripture is undeniably clear. Jesus is God. He is God in every way. In his essence, his nature, his character, his power, his person, his being, Hebrews tells us he is the final revelation of God to man. There is no more revelation to communicate who God is to mankind. Jesus 
Simply put means this. Do you want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know how God thinks, how God acts? Look to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God, and, and he has come and taken on flesh and dwelt among us. So if Jesus is God, therefore, that means this. He is not a created being because he is eternal. He is not lesser than God as if he's some kind of second in command. Because he's not like God, he is God. He's not the highest angel, for that would make him a created being. He's not the brother of Satan, for that both wrongly elevates Satan and degrades Jesus. He's not a man who achieved godhood like you find in Mormonism. He's not a prophet pointing to God like you find in Islam. He's not simply a mere man who has a great ethical system of values and wisdom like you find in many other religions and their views of Christ. And he's not a man who achieved perfection that you and I can somehow follow of our own accord. He is God. Amen. And as God, he, he, he is part of the triune God. He occupies the role of the Son. And in church family, simply what we mean by this is the reality is this. There is one God. And there are three distinct persons. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Father is the Father. The Son is the Son. The Spirit is the Spirit. And they are one God. Amen. And you go, well, Wes, this would be a great time, Pastor, for you to give us a really great analogy and example. Guess what? There's not one. <laughs> you want to know why? Because there is nothing in this created world that is triune. Because God is holy, holy, holy. He is beyond anything in this world, and only it makes complete sense that his basic nature would be beyond our ability to completely and totally comprehend or describe with natural created things. He is the Son. The Son is not a statement of inferiority, but as a statement of the role he plays inside of the triune Godhead. We do not serve three gods, one God, three persons, and three persons in unity. It means if Jesus is God, he possesses all the attributes of God in perfect harmony. It means outside of the time we'll look at in a moment where he emptied himself, Jesus is omnipresent. He is all-present. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. It means that he is love, that he is grace, that he is mercy, that he is forgiveness, that he is faithful, and he is long-suffering. It means he is righteous. It means he is just, and it also means he pours out wrath. Because if Jesus is God, he possesses every attribute of God, and he possesses all the attributes of God in perfect harmony, which church family means when you and I choose to make Jesus more of one attribute than another, we do a disservice to who he is. The same Jesus who looked out on the sheep without a shepherd and had compassion is the same Jesus who will divide the sheep from the goats and bring the sheep into everlasting paradise and the goats into everlasting punishment. And when we move one over the other, we distort the picture of who he is because he is God. And if he is God, he reveals God perfectly. I've already hinted at this. But if he reveals God perfectly, he is the final revelation. Man asking the question, what is God like? Answer, Jesus. And look at what it describes about Jesus, it said he did not regard his godhood as something to be lorded over and used for personal advantage. That means Jesus thinks humbly. Now, don't miss me here. I'm not saying that God is a pushover who thinks weakly. 
What I am saying is God is a God who thinks humbly, even though it is all about him. Jesus came, and in this humility, look what he does. He is fully God, but he is also fully man. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He found himself in appearance as a man and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus is fully God and is fully God, is, is, is fully the one true God and who thinks humbly. What, what is he led to do? He says he empties himself. Now, how did Jesus empty himself? Here's what this does not mean, all caps, not. This does not mean that there was a period where Jesus stopped being God. That's not what empties means. In fact, the way that the language is constructed, the emptying is not something Jesus loses. It's something he adds to. How does he empty himself? There's two ways. He took the form of a bondservant, and he let himself be made in the likeness of man. Now catch that. The one, how does he empty himself? He didn't, he didn't give up his godhood. Instead, what he does is he takes on flesh, real, authentic, human flesh, flesh that has limits and boundaries, and he allows himself to recognize those limits. Made the joke several weeks ago. What does this mean? Jesus emptying himself means that he chose to actually rely on the Spirit's power and the Father's knowledge rather than on his own power and his own knowledge. That's why he said, I, I, I say what I hear the Father speak. I do what I see the, the Father tell me to do. It means very practically when Jesus was spending all those years growing up in the carpenter shop and he'd, he'd all of a sudden be working on something and he would cut himself. He didn't look around to see if anyone was looking and then, then heal himself. Because he chose to accept the limits of humanity to come to take on flesh, a real flesh, an authentic flesh. But according to verse 8, it says, being found in appearance as a man. This is not a flesh he's always had. He took on flesh at a precise moment in space-time. The way Galatians describes it is in the fullness of time, God sent his Son, and the Word became flesh. At the right moment in all of history, Jesus took on real, actual flesh, but the word there says likeness, and likeness is a word that's intentionally a little vague, and here's why. Because Jesus took on real, actual human flesh, like you and I, but slightly different. So you and I are born of a mother and a father. You and I inherit from our parents in our flesh, not just, not just a flesh that is able to be broken and battered in a broken world, but you and I inherit a basic flesh nature that is by nature from the moment of our first existence, alienated from God, completely and totally sinful. Why do we sin? Because we have a nature of sinners. Jesus was born of a virgin with a real flesh, an authentic flesh, a flesh that could be harmed by this world because he allowed it. But he was not born with that sin nature like you and I. Instead, he was born sinless. And in that same flesh that was subjected to all the same temptations and trials that you and I are, he met every one of them with perfection. 
and lived the life under the law that you and I are unable to live, to present himself as a sacrifice. Do you see that? He humbled himself. He took deliberate and intentional effort. He humbled himself. He made himself low. How? By being obedient, obedient to the Father, to the Father's will, to the Father's plan, out of love for you and I, out of love for the Father, perfect love for the Father, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, just process that for a second. God Everything is about him. Everything belongs to him. He is God. He is the one who has all the right in the world to say, hey, listen up. It's about me. Do it my way. And God stepped down out of perfection and took on flesh. It means Jesus, God, allowed himself to be born, to go through the trauma and... and, and especially back in that time, the lack of cleanliness of childbirth, to be set for his first bed, not in clean linens, but in an animal feeding trough, to two poor individuals from a backwater town in the middle of nowhere. He experienced the loss of loved ones. We know his dad died somewhere in between his 12th birthday and his ministry at 30. He experienced the rejection of a nation that had said they were longing and waiting for his coming. He stepped down and humbled himself for the purpose of death. Now process that, church family. You and I as human beings, when you look around the world, what we see is a people desperate to escape death. We want to avoid death every possible way we can. Yet God chose to take on flesh to come and die by choice. Right? What did Jesus say? No one takes my life. I lay it down. And not just any death, but the most brutal, violent, horrific, uh, shameful death you could ever dream up. So that God could take him who knew no sin to become our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. See, church family, if it's not for the humility of Christ and taking on flesh and coming and living and, and dying, you and I have no salvation and hope. And here's what this says. It says that Jesus is fully God. It also says that Jesus is fully man, that he is a full and real and tangible humanity. This is what in Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16, it says about Jesus being fully man, that he is our great high priest. And a high priest has to be one from amongst the people that he represents and mediates. Jesus, being fully man, is able to be our great high priest before the Father. He is the one who is able to mediate. He is the one who is able to bring you and I back to a right relationship with the triune God. Why? Precisely because he is fully God and fully man. Not only, but he's fully man. He's able, it says, to sympathize in Hebrews 4 
with our weaknesses. Having been tempted in every way, church family, the fact that Jesus is fully man means every weakness, every frailty, every hardship you and I face in this world, every temptation you and I have to battle, he knows and understands not on a theoretical level, but on a personal experience level. And you know what the result of that produces in us? Not shame and fearful condemnation because, well, Jesus was perfect and I wasn't. It says in Hebrews 4 that if we really understand that he is fully human and is able to sympathize, that with boldness and confidence of a little kid running to their father, we run into his throne and we find grace and mercy in time of need. His humanity should give us confidence to run to him. His divinity should give us confidence to find perfect power. He is fully man. It says, well, I mentioned 1 Corinthians 5 just a minute ago, that in his humanity, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. It says later on in Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10, it talks about that the blood of Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. You see, Jesus is fully man, and being fully man means he is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect mediator, the perfect sympathizer in every way. It also means, church family, process this with me. Jesus right now has real flesh, a resurrected flesh. That means that right now, Jesus has real eyes that he looks upon us in this room with. It means when we sing his praise, Jesus has real ears. He hears your voice, and he hears my voice with it means he has real hands with nail scars. And when you and I feel totally lost, and when you and I feel beaten down by the world, and we say, Lord, it feels like you're nowhere to be, means Jesus can say, can a nursing woman forget her nursing child? and have no compassion on the son of her womb, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me, church family. If you are I in Christ, our name is engraven through nail-pierced scars on his hands because he is fully man. He is fully God. He is fully man who humbled himself, who took on flesh to die a death on a cross, but the story doesn't end there. Look back with me. For this reason, for this reason, God, the, the, the humility of Christ in coming and taking on flesh and dying, being obedient to the point of death, death on a cross, for this reason, God the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. Church family, you can't highly exalt someone who's dead. You can only highly exalt one who's alive, who's risen, for whom death has not conquered because he is both fully God and fully man. He is our Savior. He is our King. And the Father has looked on Jesus, and it says, highly exalted him. And what we mean by highly exalted him does not mean that somehow Jesus had lesser glory and now God gave him more glory. No, that's not what we mean. This exaltation, it's a confirmation and vindication. It's God's way of looking at a world where when we come up with our own gods, they are proud, they are arrogant, and they are self-seeking. And it's prone for us to go, what a weak Savior. Can you imagine the church in Philippi, gods of Apollo and Zeus who worship the emperor? 
Can you imagine their, their pagan friends saying, what a weak savior. You believe in a savior that we put to death on a cross. And God said, yes, my son was put to death on a cross. And so see the glory of who he really is. He is God. He is God. He is God who humbled himself. There is a confirmation that he is God. There is a vindication before everyone who has ever lived, seen and unseen. There is a vindication that God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That at this name, every knee will bow. A posture of humility. And every tongue will confess a declaration. And you feel the tension? What, he gave him this name, this name at which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. What is this name? Look what it says, that at the name that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, what's that title, Lord? Lord is the New Testament word, when they translated the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures into Greek that they gave for Jehovah, which was the word they invented in Hebrew because of sheer respect for the personal name of God, Yahweh. I am who I am. To give Jesus the title of Lord means to recognize that in every way Jesus is who he said he is seven times in John. I am and there is coming a moment because he is the sovereign ruler, the exalted king of all creation, seen or unseen. There is coming a moment where all, and it's, did you catch that? In heaven, on earth, under earth, all. This is angels, this is demons, this is every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever lived, is living, or will live. All of us will see Jesus enthroned in all his glory, and the response will be to fall to our knees and declare Jesus Christ is Lord. And at that moment, there will be two responses taking place. That declaration by every tongue, that does not mean every person is saved in the end. This is not universal salvation. What it means is for those of us in Christ, we will fall to our knees with a richness of joy, and we will declare that in absolute worship and peace and joy beyond anything we've ever known. But there will be others there who rejected Christ, who are vehemently opposed. There will be Nero. There will be Stalin. There will be fill in the gap. Those who tried to make themselves gods. They won't be saved, but they will be forced by the sheer glory of Jesus to fall to the knee in humility and declare he alone is Lord, not them. Because Jesus, who is he? He is the highly exalted Lord. And what does that mean for you and I? It means Jesus wins. 
He was and is and is the one who is to come. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the rightful object of our complete and total worship, church family. He is the sovereign ruler over all creation. He is the eternal king whose reign will never end. His victory is guaranteed. No matter how hard the nations and world rages today, he is our hope because he is Lord. So here, let's come back context. What is our question? We want to be clear on who Jesus is. He's fully God, not partial, not kind of, not became. He is fully God, always has been, always will be. He is the son and the role in the Trinity. He is fully man. He's taken on real authentic flesh. He lived perfection. He died and he has risen and he is the exalted, sovereign, supreme ruler of all. What's our context? Think this way in you. That's also in Christ. Or even jump back. Do nothing, verse 3, from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, not looking out for your own interest, but for the interest of others. Our context, church family, is is Paul, is, is the Holy Spirit through Paul, is God calling you and I to be a humble church. Which means, here's the question, will you and I humble ourselves in obedience and actually live lives in humility that worship Christ? If we're going to, it means we must worship Jesus rightly and truly. And here's what I mean by this. Is the Jesus we just looked at, is that the object? When you praise Jesus, is this the Jesus you're praising? Or is it possible that we could praise a Jesus that's fake, that kind of looks a lot more like us than like Jesus? This Jesus took on flesh and died and laid himself down for the good of others. But is our Jesus always... We praise you, Jesus. We praise you, Jesus, because you always give us everything we want. We praise you, Jesus, because you always let me sing the songs I want. We praise you, Jesus, because my Sunday school department's always the best. We praise you, Jesus. Do our lives point to this Jesus? Would people see Jesus as revealed in this passage in your life, in my life, based on our humility? Or would they get a different impression of who Jesus is? We must worship Jesus rightly and truly. We must think like Jesus to walk in humility with God and each other. You see, church family, the world doesn't like a braggart. The world says we like humility. The world doesn't like the overt, pompous braggart. It's all about me. But the world, and many times even in the church, absolutely rewards ambition and charisma and the one who can manipulate the system, who insists on their own way, to the one who has an agenda, the one who has the plan, to the one who promotes. The world gives glory rarely to the humble, if ever. But God says he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You see, to the church in Philippi, to, to, to take on this kind of humility, humility that meant the cross for Christ would be mockable in their society. None of them were walking around with crosses on chains. and, and cute. The cross was seen as something despicable, abhorrible. You didn't talk about it. It was shameful. To humble ourselves. I'll just, just share my heart real simply here. 
when I look out on the state of American Christianity, there's a lot, there's a lot of problems and attacks we have. But I believe one of the greatest is the fact that somewhere along the way, we as American believers have lost sight of humility. We've lost sight of laying myself down for the glory of God in other people's lives. We've lost sight of that. Instead, we build our own platforms and we take the name that is above all names and, and we create for ourselves ministries and, and, and we create for ourselves things that are all from the outside look good. But, but if we're honest in our heart, there is a pride of ambition, a pride of of value in taking the name above all names and making my own kingdom, my own way, my own preferences out of it, and how absolutely gross church family that I, as a human being, possess the ability, even rightly related to the Lord, to walk in a pride and to even use his name to do it. Conflicts and quarrels that come from personal passion, craving things we, we want but lack, refusing to ask God for what we need, asking God for what we need but with selfish ends, friendship with the world, openness to the devil. These are all the things James 4 says come rolling out of a lack of humility. It makes us ask questions, church family. Are we selfly giving, humble? What we see about God is he is a, a giving God, a giving of himself. This is humility. Am I self-giving with my wife, my children, or maybe for you, your, your husband and your children, your, your wife and your children? Are we selfly giving with the people we work with and labor with? Are we selfly giving and humble with our church family? Are we selfly giving and humble towards the lost in the world, the lost down the street, on the road, in the middle of traffic, out the office? Are we willing to humble ourselves and do what God says, when he says it, how he says it, no matter what it does to our ideal life, or no matter what it does to the ideal life we've planned for our loved one, children's, parents, brothers, sisters? Are we willing to walk in that kind of humility? I've heard it many times. I've heard people say, yeah, I don't know what God's called me to do with my life. I just know I'll never follow him overseas. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm all about, if God's told you he's not taking you overseas here, I don't think God's called every person to go overseas. But for you to say, I don't know what God's called me to do, I just will already put limits and no's on what I won't follow him to do. I've heard that many times from peers, from others. Or maybe it's not me, it's I don't know what God's got for my child, but I'll never let my child go overseas. Problem is, our children aren't our children. They're the Lord's that he gives to us for his purposes. And if we're humble, we acknowledge that. Church family, can you imagine what would it look like for this kind of humility to infect and be in churches where the younger generation stands up and says, we will selflessly die to self and give whatever we have to for the discipleship of the older generation. We'll die to our preferences. We'll die to our wants. We'll die to our desires for the glory of God amongst those who are older than us. And what would it look at the same time for those who are older to say, we'll die to our wants, we'll die to our preferences, we will give anything, Lord, for your glory to see the, the, the generations behind us discipled. If you had that, we wouldn't have worship wars and preference wars and culture wars and all these wars inside of churches. We would just look like the church and we'd be making disciples. And we'd be doing it humbly in the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. Why Jesus' name is risen high 
What would it look like for for the church to give selflessly and humbly and say, Lord, whatever it takes for you to make us a gospel-driven church, whatever it takes for you to live out your mission through us, we will gladly die to self and give it because you are worthy and because, Jesus, you have saved us. We are in you, and this is who you are. Church family, will we think like Jesus to walk in humility, but there's one last part here. If we're going to think like Jesus to walk in humility, it's going to naturally lead this, that like Jesus, we're going to seek God's vindication and exaltation. You see, church family, here's the reality. If we choose to take steps forward to walk in the humility of Christ, it will never satisfy the selfishness of the world. It will never be honored and glorified by the world in the way that appeals to the flesh. And here's the reality. All of us want glory. All of us want approval, confirmation. And the question is, will we seek the glory of God and find his approval and his confirmation, knowing that it may mean we give up our own glory and recognition in this world or even in the church family. It may mean as a church we give up whatever idea we have of what we should be or not be, what glory I should have. Means I give up the praise of men and gratification. Instead, I seek the praise of God. I give up the satisfaction of my personal desires and take the satisfaction of God in Christ in my life and his glory being lived out. See, church family, God is not looking for the ambitious, but for the humble. His eyes are not scouring the earth for the one who will come up with a great idea for him to do, but for the one who instead will listen to his word and follow his leading. He's not looking for influencers of influencers or leaders of leaders. He is looking for the one who will die to self and go to the least of these in the world's eyes. He's not looking for the one who will build their platform, but for the one who will give away their platform for his glory. See, church family, here's the reality. I firmly believe when we get to heaven, there will be thousands, and that's a gross underestimate, thousands of humble Saints whose names are unknown to you or I, whose crowns and rewards are every bit as big as what we imagine someone like Billy Graham's is. Because they died to self by humbling themselves before God to live lives, gospel-driven lives of loving obedience for God's glory and plan And though you and I don't know their name, he knows their name. And Jesus has and will welcome them into his paradise. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I am not knocking Billy Graham. Praise the Lord for Billy Graham and people like him. But too often we go, wow, that's what it means to be used by God. That's what God's looking for. No. In fact, Billy Graham would say he was God's third choice for his assignment because the previous two in their own pride chose to reject basic theology and go a different direction. Whether your name is known or whether your name is unknown, God is looking for the humble because that is who Christ is. So church family, if we want to be a gospel-driven church who reaches all generations and all peoples and all tongues and all tribes to God's glory, then we must take up the mind of our Savior and our King and our Lord and humble ourselves. So what will our response be? Let's pray.
Jesus, you, you're worthy. And when I think through this passage, Lord, I, 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 it bugs me that I don't think even remotely close do I understand just the depths of your humility because I can't fathom what you stepped down from and chose not to lord over us. And you made a choice not just to come, but you didn't come to the richest and most powerful. You didn't come to the easiest and affluent. You came to the least of these. And Jesus, the fate that most of us fear, the fate that the world seeks to run from, the fate of death, you came for the purpose of dying that you might reconcile many sons and daughters to glory. And so, Jesus, you are highly exalted. You are the Lord. You are the Christ. You are the one. And, Father, may you find in us as a church family, a church family on our knees, yielded to you for your glory. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.